our worship this morning is structured around the topic of God's judgment, the God who judges. So with that in mind, our Old Testament reading comes from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, and then the New Testament reading comes from John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then John chapter 19, starting in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father. We have heard the wonderful proclamation that you are our light, you are our salvation, and that there is nothing else for us to fear, for you are God and there is no other. We take great, great comfort in that knowledge, for we do not know what tomorrow holds, we don't know what the next second holds. And we cannot keep these hearts beating. We cannot keep these lungs filled with air. 
No amount of positive thinking will keep our cellular structure in its proper order. So we come before you, the one who is powerful to do all things, and we do ask that you will be with those who are struggling in our congregation. Pray, Father, that you would be with David Mattingly. We ask that you would give to the doctors great insight and that there would be healing in his body. We thank you, Father, for your, your powerful answer to our prayers for Sandy Berlin and that he is able to be here with us this morning worshiping. Father, we pray as well that you would continue to be with Phil and Sally Halley, that you would bless them with your presence, the knowledge that you are their God and that you are the one who brings healing. Heal Phil and bring great strength to them. We thank you for the healing work that you have already done in the body of Eileen Wood, and we pray that you would continue to heal her and continue to strengthen her. Father, we thank you for your, your care for Keith Warner, and we pray that you would bless him with complete healing. We pray the same for Becky Geiswhite. We pray thanking you for your care for all of these. We thank you for your care over Bill and Ellen Wells' granddaughter, Gwendolyn, with her heart surgery, and that things did go well, and you did answer prayer, and you protected her. Would you continue to cause her to grow strong physically, but also cause her to grow in Christ? Father, we know that there are some who grieve, and we pray thanking you for your presence with them. But they still grieve, and we ask that you would uphold them. For Rachel Hart and the death of her mother, for Bob Garrett and for Kathy Garrett and the loss of Bob's father and Kathy's mother, we pray that you would bless them. Bless them all with the ability to grieve with hope, for you are their light and their strong salvation. Now, as we look at your word, Father, we pray for the one who preaches, that you would take his feeble mouth, that you would use it for your glory and your good. I pray for those who hear as well, that we all would hear the great and wonderful news of your mercy and the fact that that mercy comes at the cost of your judgment. We ask that you would do this for us in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. So if you will open your Bibles to or look at your scripture sheets, you'll have all of the passages on your scripture sheets that I will be referring to. We're going to go back to Exodus 17. Can God create a rock? so big that God cannot lift it. If, if you were a, a first-year uh, philosophy student in Philosophy 101, you would have heard that question. Maybe you still do today. I heard it when I was in college. And the, the point of it being that the professor is posing this question that if God is all-powerful, if He is omnipotent, can He 
in his ultimate power, create a rock so big that he does not have the power to lift it? Well, the, the, the easy, quick answer to that is, no, he can't. And then they respond, well, then he can't be all-powerful. Well, that's not true. Neither can God create a um, two-sided triangle. Neither will God create a square circle. God is God, and he must do all that he can do, but he can't do that which is impossible to do. He cannot violate his character. He cannot, hear this, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That would be a violation of who he is. That would be a violation of his holy and just righteousness. Sin must be punished. Now, you think, well, this is going to be an uplifting message. Scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, we read, The end of the matter, all, that, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. His holiness and His justice demand it. He must punish sin. When we see God's judgment on the nation of Egypt in the preceding chapters to what we have just read, when he, we see those, those ten plagues that He brings down on the godless and wicked and satanic kingdom of Egypt, when he brings those judgments, he's judging their sin. Yes, he is warring against the gods of Egypt, no question, showing that he truly is God, but he does this to show them that this is the end of their lives. This is the end of their, of their existence, his wrath, his punishment upon them. And then in five out of those ten plagues, he uses Moses to hold up his staff, his rod. That, that staff of Moses becomes the judgment rod of Almighty God, where he judges sin. Remember what he does. He, takes the, he tells Moses to take his rod and go out to the Nile and strike the Nile with that rod and that it would turn to blood that it would be all that life-giving water, all the water that would provide for them in their great need would be turned to blood, and they would have no nourishment from that. All the water in Egypt turned to blood. In Exodus chapter 17, the people of God, not Egypt, but Israel, the people of God are sinning. The, the, the words that are used here, when they find that they have no water, they are using this, Moses uses this word, quarrel. If you know this word, it's not like they're just griping and being angry. No, this is a court trial. They are bringing Moses up on charges. They are saying to Moses, we are going to find you guilty 
of mass homicide. For you've brought us out here, and you are going to be the death of us. Our children, us, all of our livestock, we're going to die here, but you're going to go first. <laughs> he says it. He, when he goes and complains to God about them, he says, these people are about ready to stone me. That was the judgment. That was the death penalty in that day for homicide. So they're going to judge Moses, but they're not just judging Moses. He says, you are putting God to the test. It's interesting. If you go back in the previous chapters, we find in chapter 16 that God has just given them the manna in the morning and the quail in the evening. He gives them all that they need, everything. And now they're complaining to God, saying, you gave us all that food and you didn't give us anything to wash it down with. We're going to kill Moses. And then we're bringing you to trial, God. They've seen all the display. They've seen him provide. They've seen what it is to be drawn out of the nation of Egypt. They've seen what it is at the hand of God for the entire army of Egypt to be wiped out as the, as the Red Sea closed in on them. And now, ironically... They are standing before Moses and saying, we, not saying this, but they knew it. We saw that. However, we don't believe that God can provide for us here, or we don't believe that he will. He controlled that entire sea, but he can't provide for us water. By the way, this, don't think of it as this as several hundred people. No, there were close to probably between, somewhere between two and six million people. It's a lot of people. And that's a lot of water. But they didn't trust him. Why did God bring them out of Egypt? Do you remember what he said? It's in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look on your sheets. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He loved them. That's why he brought them out. He loved them. He chose to love them. The late Dr. Edmund Clowney, um, when I first heard him preach on this passage, one of the things that he was very um, famous for saying was, why did God love you? And he says, because he loves you. And then he asks the question, he goes, and why did, why did he love me? And he said, because he loves you. That's the answer. He set his sights on you to love you. He set his sights on the people of Israel, and he loved them. He wanted them for his own. He chose them for his own. Yes, he was keeping his covenant promise to Abraham, but he loved them. There was nothing that they had done to earn his love, nothing that they had accomplished to get in his good graces. He simply loved them. So what are they saying? 
What are they saying as they are bringing charges against Moses, as they are testing God, trying him, trying him as in the legal course of trial? What are they saying? They're saying, you're a liar. You're a liar, God. You didn't bring us out here to make us into a great nation. You brought us out here to kill us and our children. Now, you and I wouldn't do that, would we? We're kind of good. I know good and well I would. I mean, we just went through, what, a week of not being able to drink water in Germantown, tap water? And we had bottled water. Do you think I didn't complain? I would have been right there with them. I would have been picking up a rock. I would have said, I'm looking at my children, my grandchildren, and all of my family, and you're going to let them die here? Well, you're going first. So Moses goes to the Lord. And he says, I don't know what to do with this people. You hear them. They're about ready to kill me. And God says to Moses, take some of the elders and the rod with which you struck the Nile. Now stop there. What is that rod? It's the rod of judgment. It's the rod of judgment. He is saying to Moses, he says, go, walk out in front of all the people and take with you the elders and you take that rod and you walk out there. What do you think the people are seeing? If you were were one of them, what would you think they are seeing? They're looking at Moses. He's got the rod of God's judgment. They've seen what happens when Moses takes the rod of God's judgment. They were there. They saw him strike the Nile. They saw him strike the, the dust and the flies. And he saw, they saw all of that. They saw him, as he held up the rod of God's judgment, open up the sea so they could walk through on dry land and then go to the other side. And when the armies came down, he held it up and the waters caved in and killed the entire army. It was God's judgment, his wrath had a friend in seminary who, um, one of their disciplinary tactics, does anybody still spank these days? Um, we did. So what he would do is he would take these dowel rods, you know, about like that, and he would, he would put one over every door sill in their apartment so that when, wherever he was, if he needed to, all he had to do is reach up, grab it, swat, put it back up, and that was it. The discipline came, the rod of judgment. Well, one of the days that he was in there and I was talking to him, he was talking to me in the hallway and he went like this and he stretched. He was just stretching and this kid was right here and the kid goes, jumped aside. You know, what's dad reaching for? When Moses came walking through the people with the rod of God's judgment, they had to be thinking. This is it. This is it. We're about to get it. We're about to receive. They knew they deserved it. Remember, the wages of sin is death. They knew they deserved it. 
But what did he do? God said to Moses, take it, stand before the rock at Horeb, and I will be there on the rock. This is where prepositions really matter. If you read in your bulletins what the verse that I put in there, I put in the NIV version, which is incorrect. The NIV version says, and I will stand there before you beside the rock, by the rock. Prepositions matter, folks. If I were going to give you this sentence and I were to say, you know, the car is backing up and he is in the car. That's understandable. The car is backing up and he is under the car. Makes a different sentence, doesn't it? Different meaning entirely. God says to Moses, I will be there on the rock. I will be on the rock. And Moses, you are to strike the rock. God took the judgment. God took the judgment. If you read over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, turn there if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, the Israelites, We're all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ." Somebody had to pay. Somebody had to receive the wrath. Somebody had to undergo the judgment from the hand of God. And the pre-incarnate Christ was upon that rock. And Moses struck the rock. Mercy. They had received mercy. For God had taken upon Himself everything that they deserved, His wrath. You think about the cross of Jesus Christ, and you remember the words of the Apostles' Creed that He descended into hell. And there's theologians will argue, have been arguing for ages about what exactly that means for did he actually go to hell or did he suffer the full weight of hell? What is hell? Hell is the full, unbridled wrath of Almighty God with none of his goodness, none of his grace, none of his smiling face. Period. Is it real? Yes. Is it physical? Yes. Is it what Jesus suffered for me? Yes. I deserve hell. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve the full, un 
unbridled wrath of Almighty God with none of His grace, none of His smile, none of His goodness. And that's what Jesus took. I was talking several years ago, many years ago, um, to a friend, and I was reading to him this passage, and it was about the Trinity. It was in a book. And I, and I, said, I said, listen to this. This is unreal. And, and as I was reading it, it says, the author drives the point home by saying that what was the existence of the Trinity prior to creation, prior to the fall? The existence of the Trinity was nothing but love. Love. There was no reason for the Father to display His holiness to the Son. They all were in that holiness. There was no reason for the Spirit to display the wrath of God to the Father because there was no sin there. There was nothing but love in that loving relationship of the persons of the Trinity. One God, three persons, there was love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son. And on and on and on it goes. And I was reading that to this friend of mine who's a pastor. And he, and he stopped and he goes, he literally, he put his hand over his mouth and, and he, he began to cry. And he said, except for one time, when the father turned his wrath upon his son and turned away his goodness and his grace for me. That's what God did. Why did God choose you, Christian? Because he loves you. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. He provided his son to take the wrath that you deserve so that you might have the fellowship that only he had. Being drawn into that fellowship with the Godhead, knowing the full weight of the love of God, walking in that love, trusting His love, trusting Him, not warring against Him, testing Him like a child saying, you don't really love me, but trusting His grace, trusting in His mercy, that He did it because He loves you. It's for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Can you imagine? And water poured out of the rock. The father took the, I mean, the son took the wrath upon the rock and water poured out and gave them everything they needed. All of the people drank from that spiritual rock. They were satisfied. They didn't deserve that. As Jesus was upon the cross in the passage in John chapter 19, listen to what John wrote again, verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. 
why did John emphasize over and over these points? We get so tied up, so wrapped around the axle about, was this to display that he really died? Was this, listen, maybe, but it's more than that. The water and the blood. The blood was the full atoning sacrifice that was sufficient for all my sin. And the water comes out and is a cleansing of my sin from me. And gives to me the, that wonderful spiritual water that I may drink it in and walk in Him and be held in Him. That's you. If you belong to Him, that is yours. It's why you see these sacraments. I'm so glad that we have the baptismal font as well as the supper up here. You see the water for the cleansing and the blood and the body for the atoning sacrifice. Folks, this is wonderful. Our shorter catechism tells us that a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs Christ and all the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. When you take the bread, when you drink the wine, remember that as real as those are, they are sensible signs, and as real as they are, God in His mercy and in His grace and His condescension gives to us senses to pick up the bread, to take the bread, to feel it, to smell the bread, to taste the bread, to hear the crunching noise of the bread, to taste the wine, to drink the wine, to smell the wine, and to feel the full aroma of that and to know just as real as that is. Jesus' death was more real than that. If you had been there, if you had stood there, you would have been standing close to the cross at that moment, and the soldier pierced his side, the water and the blood would have splashed you. It was that real. He really died. He really paid the full and final price sufficient for all of our sin so that we can walk and trust that the rest of His promises are also true. That He now intercedes for us at His Father's right hand and we are seated there in Him. It's the full picture. So as you take it, as you touch it, as you taste it and smell it and hear it and see it, remember, it's for you, sinner. He died for you so that you wouldn't have to die. If you don't know Him, if you have never come before the Lord and said, I, I have nothing to bring to you. I have zero. I don't bring anything to you except my sin. And I want you to save me. I deserve everything that Jesus got. I deserve the pains of hell for all eternity. And I need your mercy. Have mercy on me. Pray that. Pray that he would have mercy on you. And that he would provide 
fully for you. He's faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all that your hand has brought about in our lives. The fact that you are the one who provides and gives to us everything that we need, all that we need for faith and life is found in your word. And you drive home to us over and over and over again that Jesus paid it all. Would you allow your people to rest in him and to drink fully of his grace? We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number 648. My Jesus, I love thee. Please stand as we sing together.
Christian, look up. Look up and receive the Lord's benediction, His blessing upon you because of Jesus. And now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling, causing you to stand in the presence of His glory with exceeding joy and faultless unto the most wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.